This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings to the June episode, listeners. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson, and I'm joined in the studio today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. And production editor Neil McKim. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to Katrin Rayner Evans, who will be giving us her advice ahead of the new observing season. And we'll let you in on our top stargazing tip for this month's night sky. But for now, we're going to take a look at what we've learnt whilst we were putting together the September issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. So, Ian, why don't you start us off? Yeah, well, it's um, it's been a pretty cool summer in terms of uh, British space missions. Well, specifically thinking about the Comet Interceptor mission, mm. which um, was approved, uh, was was kind of proposed and then approved by the uh, European Space Agency. Um, and um, I think there's a team of a hundred and thirty international, you know, scientists on the mission. But it's it's being kind of UK led by um, Geraint Jones from the UCL and Colin Snodgrass from the University of Edinburgh. Uh, and it's a pretty cool um, concept. It's basically they're going to send three spacecraft to visit a comet on the edge of the solar system. Um, previous comet missions like uh, Rosetta at uh, 67P Churyumov Gerasimenko, for example, um, was kind of looking at these short period comets that kind of orbit the sun regularly. So, you know, as they kind of get close to the sun, they get affected by the radiation and the heat and the ice is melting and things like this. But the idea for this mission is to catch a comet that's entering the solar system for the first time ever. Um, the idea being, you know, to get a kind of pristine specimen that hasn't hasn't been affected by radiation and heat from the sun. Um, and I suppose as, as anyone who listens to the podcast regularly will know, because I'm sure we said this quite a few times, but comets, comets and asteroids and space rocks like that are really good for kind of learning what the early solar system might have been like. You know, comets are kind of these pristine prim- primordial uh, 
leftovers from the solar system formation and the idea is that studying them in more detail you might get an idea of what the early solar system was like uh, and therefore potentially how it was created and evolved over time. Mm. I think one of the things that I found really odd almost about this mission was the fact that they don't know where they're going yet. Yeah. Um, they they haven't picked out a comet because if it's one of these these long period comets, they come in from the Oort cloud, they're usually going quite fast. Um, they don't know they're coming until they're here sort of thing. So it's going to have to like wait out in like solar orbit until something comes past. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's going to be launched on... Um in uh, 2028 on the uh, Ariel, it's an, another ESA mission, the Ariel Exoplanet Observatory, um, which is taking it to a uh, Lagrange point. And these are these points that, um, as I'm sure you'll be able to clarify this, but it's, it's basically a point where the there's no gravitational pull from it's, the sun. It's, they are, there's I think five of them, might be six. Um, they're gravitationally stable points. Yeah. Um, so it, it tends to be, you know, it's it's the point where the, the Earth and the Sun's gravitational, they balance just so, um, so that you've got like a nice little place that a, a spacecraft can sit and keep pace with the Earth um, without actually being in the same orbit as the Earth. Yeah. Well, not quite. Um, if we have any uh, Lagrange point aficionados out there, <laughs> um, it's going to be it's going to be L2, Lagrange point two, which is a... Uh, uh, 1.5 kilometers away from Earth in the direction away from the sun. Um, and yeah, as you said, as it's, it's kind of just going to sit there and mm. ground-based survey telescopes on Earth are going to be tracking potential comets coming in and then a science team is going to work out its that comet's future tra- trajectory and then they're going to basically do like a, a flyby. It, it sounded a bit like um, the New Horizons flyby at uh, Ultima mm. Thule in the Kuiper Belt, just yeah. kind of whizzing past but... Um, slow enough that they can kind of take images and infrared and spect- spectrographic uh, readings and things like that. You can you can get quite a lot of information from a comet, especially something like a comet, which tends to be you know throwing off a bunch of stuff as it goes. Yeah. Um. In in the form of a tail. Is there anything that looks a bit like a comet that they might chase by? Sort of like early stages that they might chase I think, by. Extent? I think somebody said that. Um, I, 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 comets tend to look quite like comets. Um, yeah. Sometimes there's there's a kind of grey area between what is a comet and what is an asteroid. Um, and some of those sort of seem to cross over a bit. Um, I think what's more likely is that they'll find something else that looks interesting. So, like, there was uh, a Muamua that came through the solar system la- last year, um, which was uh, an... I'm going to call it a space rock because we're still not entirely sure. Again, it was one of those, is it an asteroid? Is it a comet? No, it's a Muamua. Um, uh, <laughs> but that came from, we think it came from another solar system. So if something like that came through, then there's a chance that they might go, well, let's go and get that one then. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, when you kind of think of the Rosetta mission, we, you know, one of the things that you think of is the Philae lander. But unfortunately, they're not actually going to be able to put a lander down in this comet. They're just, they're just moving too quickly. Um, and if... Even if they were to kind of slow down, um, it would take up too much fuel. But then it's going to be whizzing past again, so you wouldn't be able to kind of communicate the lander with, um, with the space with the spacecraft. It's mm-hmm. actually going to be three spacecraft in total. It's going to be like a kind of main spacecraft, and then two subspacecraft are going to be deployed. And the idea is that they'll um, send the information in real time to the main mm-hmm. spacecraft because they're kind of expecting that those two subspacecraft will probably be destroyed at some point because mm-hmm. it's such so risky. So that's that's the idea. It'll kind of send back the, the information. It does seem to be there's a lot of missions at the moment which are using those kind of like CubeSaty things. So, you know, yeah. sort of stuff that's sort of the size of a shoebox or maybe slightly bigger. Um, and you can just sort of essentially, some of them literally just have smartphones on them. 
yeah. <laughs> um, to power them because now we're all carrying around supercomputers in our pocket, yeah. um, at least by, you know, the standards of 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and so because these are quite cheap, you can just throw them out and being very careful to dispose of them properly after you're done with them, obviously. Um, <laughs> don't want to end up with a bunch of space junk all over the place. But it, it does mean that... an upgrade, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a bit of a long way to send, send your upgrade, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, and there is another um, kind of mission already on its way, isn't there, Neil? Uh, to... um, yeah, I was interested to um, read about this um, Indian space mission Um from the Indian Space Research Organization. Um, they successfully launched um, Chandrayaan-2 um, on the 22nd of July on board the um, G GSLV Mark III launch vehicle. Uh, apparently, it was the launch vehicle itself was about the size of a 14-story building, so quite impressive. But they kept the whole budget down, um, and it's it was a total of 150 million. So they were saying they wanted to be ambitious and modest, mm -hmm. which obviously compares to the millions spent on the Apollo in the in the 60s. Um, it's uh, it's on its way at the moment. They're hoping to slingshot it from Earth's gravity, and they've already sent back some really nice pictures of the Earth um, that they've taken on the way, which came came back on 3rd of August. Um, they're hoping to put down a lander called Vikram, uh, which is named after the founder of the uh, ISRO, um, near the moon's south pole on 7th September. And that's also going to have with it uh, a rover called Pragyan, which means wisdom in Sanskrit, and that's only weighs 27 kilograms. And that's going to explore the terrain around the south pole looking for water and minerals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... That Going to make India the first country to set something down in the lunar south pole, if I'm right? I think so. I mean, it says it's the fourth country to make a soft landing on the lunar surface. The the um, Chang'e 4 from China, um, it was on the far side, and I'm pretty sure that was in the South Pole Lake Basin. Um, but it's it's still, it's you know, that's the place that people want to be these days. Um, that's where they think there might be water. Um, if you're likely to, to be setting up some kind of permanent base, then then that's one of the places that people are thinking of going. Yeah, because there's lots of ice there, isn't there? And it's kind of lots of critters. ice. It's, um, you know, it's also things to do with lighting to make sure that your solar panels are going to get nicely um, charged and stuff. Um but it's 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 one of those things Indians always been very good at with their space program is doing. eBay Motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die. You can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. 
Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, Brady PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramount Plus. Affordable missions. I don't really want to call them cheap um, because they're not cheap. They are really advanced space missions, but they do them at a fraction of a cost of, of what NASA was spending. Um, and with a, a, a lot more success than um, so, so other space agencies as well. Um, I mean, I, I was reading that this, this mission is also going to be kind of... Uh measuring moonquakes and, and the temperature of the soil and kind of looking mm. at, you know, the kind of composition. So it is obviously going to be doing really good science as well, isn't it? It, it is. It's um, a lot of the science is, is stuff that's already been done by um, other probes, but it's not been done very much in the South Pole Lake and Basin. And also it's one of those things that, you know, we don't just send geologists out to look at one rock in one place and then go, OK, we know everything about the Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to do it all over the lunar surface to, to make sure that it's... It, is it just one big uniform rock or is it different places look different? Um, does it change over time? Those kinds of things. I thought the the um, the kind of Earth orbit that the um, spacecraft's going to be doing is quite interesting. It seems to be like it's going to be orbiting Earth for quite a while, but the Earth, it's going to be kind of stretching its orbit over time and then eventually mm. kind of slingshotting itself towards towards the moon. Yeah, that is... I'm, I'm not 100% sure whilst they're doing that. It's probably... It's more fuel efficient or something like yeah, that. Or just, just trying something different, maybe. Yeah. Um, but it's... Because if you're not in a rush, because um, a lot of the, the lunar orbits... A lot of early lunar research obviously came from the Apollo mission and you don't want to be keeping um, astronauts in orbit for no reason for two, three months. Yeah, especially if you're in kind of like political and ideological competition with another nation. You know, just like, right, let's just build a massive rocket and go. <laughs> Essentially, that's, yeah, it's like even the, the first couple of lunar landers, it was literally, we're just going to build a really big rocket, point it at the moon and hit go. <laughs> More accurately, hit the, where the moon will be in the three days when it actually gets there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it also is spearheaded by two women, which is good as well as the project mm. yes I, I i noticed that as well it's there's um a, a lot of women um involved in the um indian um space agency um if you look at it's i always enjoy looking at their their control rooms because um everybody dresses up and so you see all of the women in their brightly colored saris <laughs> and it just looks so much more exciting than the you know the white shirt and black tie that you see <laughs> over at NASA yeah at Houston um speaking of which actually um We've mm-hmm. been we've been looking, at, been looking a bit like at the uh, Juno um, mission this uh, this issue too. Yes, um, I've been looking at what's been going on with the Juno mission. Um, so that's because at the moment Jupiter is uh, very high in the sky, um, but the Juno mission has been over uh, at the um, at Jupiter for for several years now. Um, it's currently completed uh, at the time of recording. It completed its twenty first. Perijove, which is the name for when it comes in really close and skirts the planet and actually has a look um, up close. Uh, its next Perijove is on the 12th of September. So as you're listening to this, that might have already happened. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But it, it has to do those kind of like looping orbits because Jupiter, because it's so big, it's got this enormous um, radiation field around it. It's got this enormous magnetic field, which isn't great if you're a spaceship with various electronic components that tend to, you know, catch fire if they're exposed to too much radiation. Uh, <laughs> Metaphorically and sometimes literally, um, but uh, it's it's in that time it's it's already beginning to make discoveries. So the whole point of Juno is that it's going to go around and around the planet, um, do these very close passes, and build up a map um, of the planet. Uh, this, rather than being a a visual thing with cameras, um, there is a camera on board called Junio Cam, but that's not one of the main instruments. It's doing it gravitationally and magnetically. So it's building up a, a a picture of its gravity field and its magnetic field. And using those, you can get right underneath the clouds and into the heart of Jupiter. So that's what that's been doing at the moment. Yeah, it's kind of another one of those, these missions. I mean, just because we were talking about the the interceptor and comet interceptor and what it, what it kind of might also do. I mean, and I was thinking about like the the, the Kepler mission and, and how that was kind of extended. And, and it's the same with Juno, because if I remember correctly, it, it should have been over by now quite a long time ago. But wasn't there something that something effectively went wrong with the spacecraft, which meant it couldn't do its really close orbits? But mm. that was also kind of a good thing because it can survive the radiation for longer. So that's why it's still going. Yeah, it was supposed to have much shorter. It's uh, I think it's about 50 something days, 52, 53 days between those close passes, those perijoves. Um, and they were supposed to be it was supposed to be a lot shorter between those it was supposed to do it much more frequently but something went wrong they didn't have enough fuel to be able to do that one of the thrusters didn't work um and so it's it's just doing these far distant passes and it's lasted a lot longer and in fact actually the even taking that into consideration the spacecraft is doing a lot better than they thought it would. Um, there's this camera called Juno Cam, which is actually, it, it wasn't really meant to be a scientific instrument at all. It's almost purely for PR reasons. It takes these lovely visible images of the planet, which then go up on the internet and anybody can do whatever they like to them and process them and do all kinds of things. Um, that camera was only expected to last through two or three close passes. It's now 20 on and it's still fine. Um, and in fact, most of the spacecraft is doing much better than they thought it would. Um, it's actually a little bit sad that they think the thing that's going to kill Juno isn't, you know, radiation or running out of fuel or anything like that. It's budget. Um, mm. They're going to run out of money and have to turn it off, basically. Well, why do these missions always last so much longer? Is it kind of like putting like a a kind of sell by date on food? You, like, you know, like people <laughs> always say, oh, they, you know, they put sell by dates early to allow for... It's, there's there's something called the uh, level one requirement for all, for NASA missions, at least planetary ones, um, which is this is the minimum amount of time that we want to get out of this spacecraft in order to consider it a success. Um, but engineers and scientists sort of almost see that as a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, or it's it's just that, you know, I've sunk decades of my life into this thing. I'm going to make sure it lasts as long as it possibly can. And so they, they push it and make these the instruments as, as good as they can and try and sort of... Sometimes there's a bit of a war between the people holding the purse strings mm. of, you know, good the, the sort of good is better than finished. Uh, finished is better than perfect sort mm. of philosophy. It's like it doesn't matter if it won't last for 70 years as long as it lasts for 70 days yeah. kind of thing. But that said, because we have all of these engineers and people sort of pushing things, we've got, you know, voyagers still going. 
both of them are still going out at the outskirts of the solar system. <laughs> um, Curiosity still going. Um, the Mars and uh, Mars Exploration Rover, Spirit and Opportunity, they lasted for decades when they were supposed to last for ninety. Um, Mars days, mm-hmm. you know, it's just it's ridiculous how long they make these things last. Yeah, I mean, do, do we know? Is it going? Is Juno going to have a kind of Cassini end where it'll, you know, go into the go into the um, Jupiter and a kind of in a controlled impact and then take data right up until the last minute? Or? I would be very surprised if they didn't. Um, the reason why they did that with uh, Cassini was because there was moons like Titan and Enceladus which might have life on them. Yeah. Um, and because these are orbiters, they haven't been uh, put through the strict planetary protection procedures. So basically where they're, you know, scrubbed and doused with killer gas and put in ovens to 100 million degrees. Um <laughs> To, to to kill all the nasty bugs, and then still there'll be some left. Um, so they 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 ditched Cassini into Saturn, and they'll probably ditch Juno to to protect Europa, um, which is the icy moon where they think there might be life, and Ganymede too as well. Actually, now I think yeah. about it. So yes, that's what's going on with Jupiter at the moment. Um, and actually, uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, Jupiter is well placed in the night sky at the moment. Uh, if you want to go and have a look for it yourself, um, and in fact, we're just about to head into the new observing season for astronomy. And we talked to Catherine Rayner Evans about what you can do to prepare. In our September issue, Catherine Rayner Evans from Cardiff Astronomical Society reveals her top tips for deep sky observing. And today I'm speaking to Catherine to get her advice on preparing for the new season of astronomy. Uh, Catherine, thanks very much for speaking to me today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited. Um, are you looking forward to, to to the longer nights? I mean, do, do the summer months kind of have an impact on your observing? Is, is kind of autumn and winter something that you look forward to? Um, absolutely, yes. Um, I always think this time of year is really exciting. You know, the nights are drawing in. Mornings are certainly getting darker, which provides more time and opportunity for stargazing. And sometimes I even try and fit it in before before I go to work in the morning. You know, winter constellations are going to start appearing, um, such as Orion and the Pleiades, and we'll have Gemini and Taurus in the sky, and the moon will be easier to observe, and deep sky objects such as the Orion Nebula will be a hotspot for for observers, um, professional or, um, you know, kind of beginners. It's a real easy target for beginners, and we'll be able to start seeing planets like Neptune and Uranus, and Venus is going to be at its best towards the end of September. And to be honest, I do very little observing in the summer months purely because it doesn't get dark until so late. I'm not a night owl. Um, But a lot of my astronomy friends will kind of be out till two, three o'clock in the morning observing, taking pictures. But if I do go out in the summer, I love looking at the Milky Way. I enjoy the Perseid meteor shower. Um, That's always really a great sight. And I keep an eye on websites, magazines to tell me which planets are visible. And I'll just often observe them with my naked eye or binoculars. And I love photographing the moon. So whenever the moon's out and it's a good clear night, I'll just get out there with my camera and take pictures um, and use my moon map, which is a great asset to have. Um, If you are a moon lover, I'd advise you to get one. But yeah, I mean, lots of exciting things coming up. Um, And of course, as I mentioned, meteor showers, um, the Orionids in October and Geminids in December. They are real treats. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think it's kind of something that we you definitely see across kind of uh, amateur astronomy in the UK anyway, that people kind of getting excited about the about the new season. But I suppose it, as we're kind of preparing to get to those longer, longer nights, um, do you think there's a certain amount of kind of upkeep that's required on, on, on telescopes and things like that, you know, to actually get ready for the new season? Like what, what sort of stuff do you kind of do to prepare your your uh, equipment 
Okay. Um, yeah. So for people like me um, who don't use their observing equipment much in the summer, I'd say now is the time to start doing some maintenance on it. Um, so whether that's your binoculars, telescope or a monoscope, for example, um, hopefully you've been keeping your kit in a padded bag and telescopes have been covered, eyepieces have been removed and, and safely stored in boxes away from damp and dust. Um, but even keeping your kit in storage will not mean that they are 100% clean because dirt will happen. So, um, yeah, clean lenses with soft cloths. Um, the lenses on binoculars and, and telescopes on the eyepieces can get dirty very quickly, especially from, you know, touching and holding them up to your eye. Um, so, yeah, just give them a, a wipe over. Um, but I would say if you are new to telescopes and maintaining them, I'd just leave the mirror well alone, even if it is dirty. Um, once you've touched that mirror, if you scratch it, then it will just be disastrous. So don't even touch it. And yeah, get your equipment out now in the daytime. Um, focus it on terrestrial objects in the distance because that will help you work out if there is a problem with the equipment um, and if you do need to do any fine tuning. So just play around with it and, you know, does something not feel right? Um, maybe the clamps will need to be lubricated or screws need tightening. So just make sure any moving parts are working smoothly. And if you do have a go-to mount, then, you know, check the motor's running properly and, and you have done any software updates if they're needed. Um, and check and charge any battery packs, I'd say, um, because the last thing you want to do is, you know, you go out at night, you've driven miles and your battery pack's totally dead. You'll be very disappointed. <laughs> um but yeah, I just say it all sounds really simple and obvious, but just check everything because even a small fault can totally ruin your night out observing. For example, I took my camera out one evening observing and guess what? My battery wasn't in the camera or in the bag. So <laughs> you can imagine I was just tearing my hair out and um, yeah, I was very embarrassed and upset. <laughs> Are there things that you actually do kind of to prepare mentally? So like, would you kind of sit down and, and look at the months ahead and what's going to be in the night sky and actually plan uh, observing sessions around specific targets? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest things that maybe people overlook when they're out observing is they haven't got a goal. You know, there's so much for people to look at up there and you kind of go outside and you're just overwhelmed. You don't know what you're looking at. So, um, yeah, I'd say, you know, plan, use apps on your phone or your laptop, um, read up on magazines, just see what's out there, write down in a logbook what it is you want to see, just prepare. Um, but obviously, the, one of the main problems, I suppose, with kind of the nights getting darker is that it also gets colder. I was wondering if you had any tips for for keeping warm while observing. I have like a million tips because <laughs> I've learned from past experience that being cold is just like the worst thing when you're trying to observe. Um, for example, I went up to Brecon last year for the first day meteor showers with dark sky whales. I was volunteering with those guys um, and it'd been a really hot sunny day. So I was kind of prepared for the cold evening, but I not as prepared as I should have been because it was so cold. So yeah, if you're new to observing, prepare yourself for long cold nights. And like I said, even on a hot summer day, the night's going to get cold really quick. You'll get a shock. So yeah, just make sure you have lots of warm clothing with you. I'd say a thick winter coat with a hood, of course, like hat, gloves, scarf and good warm footwear because when you are standing still in a cold mountainside somewhere, you will realise very quickly that your feet are the first thing that will probably get colder. So yeah, thick socks and boots. And um, 
you know, even a tip here, stand on a car mat or even a small footstool because that'll keep your feet away from direct contact with the ground and your feet will be a lot warmer because you're not losing so much heat to the ground. And my latest must do, which I don't know why I've never done this before, is um, take a flask with a hot drink. Honestly, it's a miracle. And I've noticed like my endurance and staying power um, has greatly increased and I can kind of stay out a lot longer than I um, than I used to. If you're just using binoculars to observe, take a sun lounger out with you and then you can have the luxury of perhaps taking a duvet, thick blanket and a hot water bottle. Um, but preparation is key. So once you're cold, you will be miserable and the night will probably be ruined. So yeah, prepare. And what about your equipment? Are, are, are you the kind of person who uses like uh, dew heaters and, and things like that to, to kind of keep things keep things uh, running at a, at a decent temperature yeah so you can um heat up the telescope to kind of keep the dew off it you can use heat pads um even a hairdryer if you're feeling adventurous so you can kind of modify a hairdryer i think my, my friend's done that think of inventive ways to kind of to keep your equipment warm and and not you know, um, get condensation. Yeah. Um, I was also wondering, um, I'm, I'm sure there, there are lots of people here kind of getting ready for a new season, you know, having kind of put all their stuff away last mm-hmm. year. But, but but there must also be people who maybe, you know, got got a telescope, you know, last Christmas and then never, never kind of got around to using it. So I, I suppose, you know, the start of the new astronomy season might be a time to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, get out that telescope that's basically just sat in your garage or attic since, since Christmas time. I mean, sure. I, what would you kind of say to people who... Are, are actually trying to use the telescope for the first time? I, I think my biggest piece of advice is just get to know your scope. Like I said earlier, practice it within the daytime, get to know how to set it up and familiarise yourself with it. Because when you try and set up a scope in the dark, um, you, you'll get annoyed, frustrated, want to smash it into a million pieces and never see it ever again. So, um, yeah, just get to know, get to know it and organise all, you know, the kind of, eyepieces that go with it put them in plastic boxes label them yeah and and have a goal so if you haven't used your telescope before perhaps the best way um of kind of starting to learn the night sky is not start with the telescope immediately but just get out there with your naked eye and do some observing and and get to learn the constellations that way first because I I do think if you try and use a telescope straight away and you've had no previous experience I think you'll just lose interest very quickly because you're not kind of seeing what you what you thought you would join a society or a club you can take your telescope along to that um, so if you haven't used it before, those kind of observing sessions at societies and clubs run are really handy because they'll show you how to set it up and point you in the right direction of, you know, looking at a star cluster or a nebula, for example, or even even just the moon. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're really useful to go along to. Plan the night out as well. Set up your scope somewhere that's away from a town or a city and where the ground conditions are suitable. Even plan making observing logs because um, these can kind of give you a great sense of satisfaction and will inspire and motivate you to keep going out more often because you are kind of recording what you've seen in the night sky. Yeah, and manage your expectations. I think first time using a telescope, you know, the images you see in magazines isn't what you're going to see in through your telescope. So expect that they're not going to look like amazing red, you know, red, green clouds of gas it's probably just going to like a ghostly image so um so yeah just plan and practice brilliant but i, I suppose you know at, at the end of the day the the most important advice that you can give is just to kind of get out there and actually get observing 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not going to do any good sat in in a box in the attic or whatever. And um, yeah, just start small, you know, just do it slowly. You know, astronomy does require a lot of patience. So yeah, just take your time. Okay, Catherine, well, uh, those are absolutely fantastic tips and hopefully people will get a lot of uh, advice out of them and um, hopefully um, inspire people to get, to get outside and get observing. Uh, thanks very much for speaking to me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. That was Catherine Rayner-Evans. You can find out more about getting ready for the new observing season in the September issue of BBC Sky Night magazine. There's lots to see in the night sky this month, all of which we cover in the September Sky Guide. But for my personal highlight, I suggest keeping an eye out for the planet Venus, which will be up in the September evening sky. As the brightest of the planets, it should be fairly obvious just above the horizon in the western sky. But you'll have to be quick if you want to see it, as it's only up for around 30 minutes after sunset. You might want to make a special effort to look out for the planet on the 13th of September because that's when it'll be right next to its inner sibling, Mercury. Then again, on the 29th of September, there's a great photo opportunity when the Moon, Mercury and Venus will all be up in the sky at the same time together. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about everything we've talked about here in the September issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also take a closer look at the Cygnus Loop, learn about how to get the most out of your deep sky observations and plan what to observe in this autumn and winter's night sky. And don't forget our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes. 